Father, would you grant the power of your Spirit upon your Word today to each one of us? We pray that it would not just be some ancient document that has no relevance for our lives. We pray that the Word of God would be living and active in our hearts, each heart today. Each person that's come is at a different place and needs, oh Holy Spirit, you to touch them. So we pray that the powerful Word of God would do its work. And Lord, we will be careful to give Jesus the praise. And it's in His wonderful, beautiful name we pray. Amen. The book of 2 Timothy uh, was written when Paul was nearing the place of execution in his life. He's in a dungeon in Rome. He says that my life is already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And in that particular situation, he writes this letter to his understudy, his friend Timothy. They had been traveling together for 15 years. They were close. They were like a father and a son. And there from that prison cell, Paul picks up his quill and a piece of parchment, and he begins to write this last inspired letter that he would ever write. And the burden of his heart when he wrote this letter is that he wanted Timothy to continue on. He wanted him to take that torch and continue to run after Paul was gone. You have to know that in the back of Paul's mind where the thought was running like this, what's going to happen after I'm dead and gone? I've been faithful to carry this gospel where God told me to carry it. But I'm going away. I'm, I'm going to meet the Lord. What's going to happen to this gospel when I'm gone? And so he's wondering, is it going to be discarded? There was already a defection amongst the people in Asia towards Paul and his ministry. What's going to happen to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus? Is it going to continue on? Is it going to continue to save souls and go everywhere throughout the world or is there going to be a turning away from it? And Paul has this, you might say, this sense of, of anxiety. And so he writes to Timothy to strengthen him to take that torch and to run with it with all that he has and to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy has already been a leader in the church at Ephesus. But Paul is going to encourage him to assume far greater responsibility within the church than he has ever assumed to this point. If Paul is dying, those people that he has trained personally are going to have to take up the mantle and begin to minister in the places that he has been ministering. So Timothy is going to have to assume this great deal of leadership responsibility. And humanly speaking, he's completely unfit for that task. And Timothy knows it. And there's three reasons why Timothy's not a good candidate for, be, for being a great spiritual leader at this time. Number one, uh, he was comparatively young. Usually, if you have a person in a place of great authority and leadership, they're older, they're more experienced. Timothy's a younger man. We know that from 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, Let no man despise your youth. And then also in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, but flee youthful lusts. So Paul looked at Timothy as being a young person, a youthful person. Secondly, Timothy's prone to sickness. Remember over in 1 Timothy 5, he says, I want you to not just drink water exclusively, but take some wine for your stomach because you have these frequent ailments and stomach problems. Well, he had these... He was prone to sickness, these frequent ailments. And then thirdly, he was timid by temperament. 
you, you get that picture as you go through the book of 2 Timothy because Paul is continually urging him to be willing to suffer hardship for Christ Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of love and power and discipline. And later he'll say, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And all the way through this letter, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, being willing to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. So Timothy was probably a bit on the timid side. If he was living today, we might call him an introvert, or he was a shy person. I can relate to Timothy in that respect. You guys probably never guessed this, but I'm... Well, you probably know this about me, but I'm shy. I'm, I'm more of an introvert. When I was in high school, I hated those days when I had to give up and give some kind of a public speech. I hated it with a passion. But because I was also a perfectionist and wanted to get straight A's, I would do it anyway. But I hated it. <laughs> and it amazes me that to this day that I can stand up and give the Word of God to you folks. That's not my natural... Oh, why am I talking about myself? This is Timothy we're talking about here. So Timothy's comparatively young. He's prone to sickness. And the third thing, he's, te- he's timid by temperament. I want to read to you a scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. So there must have been some kind of a reason that people might naturally despise Timothy. So Paul has to write to the church at Corinth and say, don't let anyone despise him. He's doing the work of the Lord. Put him at ease. He's naturally a little um, ruffled, uh, anxious, timid. So put him at ease. He's doing God's work. So we have here a person who uh, is promoted to a position of great leadership who's young, who's sickly, and who's timid. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of young. I tend to have weaknesses and frailties, and I'm kind of timid. I'm kind of shy. Well, if you can, take heart from Timothy, because God used Timothy in great and powerful ways. He used him beyond his natural capabilities, and he'll use you in the same way. So Paul's wondering, what's going to happen to this gospel after I'm gone? Is it going to be discarded? Is it going to be neglected? Is it going to be corrupted? And Paul's passion and his his heart in all of this writing is he wants Timothy to be a faithful man. Over in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul says, And the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to who? Faithful men. Now, if Timothy is going to entrust the gospel to faithful men, Timothy is going to have to model faithfulness to these faithful men. He's going to have to set the example. And so Paul is calling Timothy in chapter 1, of 2 Timothy, he's calling him to faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to that gospel. And as we work our way through, we're going to see that he wants him to be faithful in three separate ways. He wants him to be faithful to spread the gospel. Not only to spread the gospel, but he wants him to also suffer for the gospel. And then the third thing that he wants him to do is to safeguard that same gospel. Spread the gospel, suffer for the gospel, and safeguard the gospel. And this wasn't just for Timothy. 
there is relevance for every Christian here. God wants you to spread the gospel. God wants you also not only to spread it, but to be willing to suffer for it. And he wants you to safeguard it in whatever way you can. So let's work our way through this text. Starting in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. He says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For which reason? Now what does he mean by that? For this reason, or for which, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Well, he just told us in verses 9 and 10, I'll pick it up in verse 10, Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. It was for the gospel's sake that Paul was appointed a preacher. Now what is a preacher? Give me one word that would be a synonym for preacher. A what? An exhorter. Okay, good, good. A herald. Excellent, excellent. Someone who stands up in the town square and cries out, Hear ye, hear ye, the word of the king, and proclaims a message from the sovereign authority. That's a preacher. That's kind of like what Kelly and Sean and John were doing yesterday when they stood up at the Gold Rush days and they proclaimed... They weren't there to simply share or discuss. They were proclaiming the good news of how God saves sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not just a preacher. He was also an apostle. He was a sent one. He was one that Jesus commissioned himself to go forth to preach this gospel and then to plant churches, to bring converts together to be local churches with leaders that they themselves would then be responsible for bringing this gospel within the sound of the voice of all the people in their vicinity. So he was a preacher. He was an apostle. He was also a teacher. Do you know we also need teachers within the body of Christ? Preachers are great, but we also need teachers. We need preaching and teaching. Paul was both. God had gifted him to teach this gospel and to preach this gospel. But what we find here is that Paul was spreading the gospel. You see that clearly? Paul was one who was spreading the gospel by teaching it, by proclaiming it, by gathering converts into churches and then commissioning them to reach their city with this same gospel as an apostle. And you might be saying, okay, Brian, great. I can see that Paul was spreading the gospel. What does that have to do with me? I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a preacher. And I'm not a teacher. So I guess I'm off the hook. I don't have to spread the gospel. Well, not so fast. (laughs) I want to take some time this morning to look at some scriptures to see exactly what is the responsibility of every Christian. Not apostles and preachers. You and me. All of us here. Does God have anything to say about the average, ordinary child of God? What is his responsibility towards this gospel? So let's take a look at some scriptures. First of all, Matthew 28. This is one you probably know well. You may even have this one memorized. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, so who is this spoken to? 
Yeah, the 11 apostles. Judas was gone by this point. He had 11 left. He's speaking to the 11 apostles. And they say, okay, well that tells us the Great Commission is for the 11 apostles. They're dead and gone, so we're off the hook. We don't have to do anything with this gospel. Well, let's think it through a little bit more deeply. Jesus told those 11 apostles to make disciples. And what did he tell those uh, apostles to teach these disciples? Yeah, what they had been taught. Everything Jesus taught them, they were to pass that on to their disciples. Well, what did Jesus just teach them as a new commandment in this verse? (laughs) It was to make disciples. That was one of the things Jesus commanded them. And then he said, I want you to go make disciples and command every disciple to do everything I commanded you. And one of the things he commanded them was to make disciples. So just from this text alone, we ought to know that every disciple of Jesus Christ has been commanded to make other disciples. Second reason, the end of verse 20. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even when? To the end of the age. Well, folks, those folks died off long time ago. There's been 1,900 or more years since the last one died. But Jesus said he would be with those people making disciples until the end of the age. So from this text, I take it that it's all of our job to spread the good news and to make disciples. Second text, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Here Paul writes to the whole church, not just the elders there, and he says to the whole church, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Okay, so let's catch the flavor of what's taking place here. Paul says, whole church, every Christian at the church in Colossae, this is your responsibility. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward who? Outsiders. Now, who would an outsider be? Yeah, someone outside the church. Someone who's not yet come into the grace of God. So whenever you're with somebody who's outside of the church of Jesus Christ, this is what you're supposed to do. Act wisely. Well, how do we act wisely, Paul? You make the most of the opportunity. In other words, every time you're in touch with someone who's not saved, you're thinking and praying, Lord, how can I be wise to make the most of this opportunity? And it doesn't just affect your use of time. He goes on to say it affects the use of your speech. Let your speech always be with grace. Gracious words. Seasoned as it were with salt. So that you may know how you should respond to each person. So each outsider that you have a conversation with, we ought to be praying for wisdom. That God will give us gracious words to speak to them. So do you see the flavor here? Every Christian has been called to do something with his life, making the most of every opportunity, and to speaking gracious words so that that person can come to know the love of God and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, another text, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Now here Peter's talking to all of the saints again. It's not just the leaders. And he says you need to be ready to give an account to everybody who asks you. So there again, the whole church is involved in giving a defense of the hope that they have. 
Now remember, the people that, Paul, that Peter's writing to were going through suffering and persecution. And as they bore up under that suffering and persecution well, giving God the glory and depending upon Him to give them the strength to go through those sufferings, people were going to ask them questions. What's your hope? Why, why do you live like this? Why don't you just renounce this crazy Jesus thing and save yourself a lot of trouble and a lot of pain? And then they could give an answer. They could give a defense for the hope that was in them. But the point I want to draw your attention to is that it was every Christian that Peter was writing to, not just the elite, not the super spiritual Marines. It was everybody. Okay, fourth text, Acts chapter 8. And I want you to look at verses 1 and 4. This is right after Stephen was martyred. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, let's get it straight. Who's remaining in Jerusalem? Who's being scattered? Everybody else, (laughs) which includes all ordinary Christians. And what's the example we have from the Word of God that they did? They went about preaching the Word. They spread the gospel. They looked at it as their responsibility to get this gospel to all the nations. So wherever they went, they brought the gospel to bear. So I conclude from these passages of Scripture that God has a role and a purpose for every single one of us in spreading this gospel. God wants all of us to be propagating it. Now, it's true that not all of us are going to do it the same way. Not all of you are going to get up on a street corner and preach. Maybe not all of you are going to go out on the streets to strangers and hand out tracts and witness. But you need to find some way, consistent with the gifts God has given you, the personality He's given to you, the calling on your life. You need to find a way to spread this gospel. Each of us can do something. Do you believe that? That you can do something to spread this gospel? We need to believe that. We need to believe God can use each one of us, no matter who you are, what your temperament is, how shy you might happen to be, God can use you. And folks, if we don't do something to spread the gospel, what do we call that? Disobedience. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. Is Jesus really your Lord? I just want to ask that of you this morning. Is He your Lord? That means He's your boss. You can't be a Christian unless He is. Let me just make that clear. You need to be willing to surrender your life to Him if you want everlasting life. The Scripture says, He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You need to be willing to surrender to His Lordship to come into His kingdom. So if you are a Christian, that means that we don't have the option of whether we're going to obey. We must find a way to obey Jesus to make disciples of all the nations. You know, if I... Let's say this is 10, 15 years ago and my son Jonathan is 10 years old and I say, Jonathan, go clean your room. He says, okay, Dad... And he comes back two hours later and he says, Dad, I thought about what you say and I understand what you said. And I could even memorize what you said. You said, Jonathan, go clean your room. And on top of that, 
Um, I invited my friends over and we all did a study on what it would look like if I actually cleaned my room. And you know, Dad, I can even say it in Greek. But you know, that's what we do in the church. It's so crazy. Jesus has told us something very simple. Go make disciples. And we have Bible studies on it. And we can quote Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We all know the Great Commission. How many Christians actually do it? How many obey it? It's not up for option. It's not something that we can take or leave. This is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. So folks, I want to set you to praying that God would show you what you can do in your sphere of influence to spread this gospel. Because it's for every Christian. I love what Angela was sharing earlier about Brittany. There's just one example of, if we pray, I am convinced, God will give us opportunities to spread the good seed. Okay, so the first point is, we must spread the gospel. We must spread it. Secondly, we must be willing to suffer for it. And I get this from verse 12. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. For this reason, he says, I also suffer these things. For what reason? Because he was preaching and teaching the gospel. Because he was sort of an upfront, in-your-face, kind of public figure. He was one of the first ones that was nailed by the Roman government when Christianity came under fire. Paul was always out there preaching the gospel. And you know, Paul could have... He could have evaded and escaped a lot of pain in his life if he said, I'll just take a couple of years off from preaching the gospel until things quiet down, and then I'll get about doing it again. But he didn't do that, did he? Paul could not have done that. He says, woe to me if I do not preach this gospel. He felt an inner compulsion. He must obey the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ had sent him to do that. He was willing to suffer in order to be faithful to this gospel. Now notice the reason why. He says, I'm not ashamed. Even though it's causing me great pain and it's going to cost me my life very soon, I'm not ashamed of it. Well, why not, Paul? Because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. The reason I'm not ashamed is because I know whom I have believed. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. As though, once you get all of these propositional truths down, you're in, you're great, everything's good. You see, the problem with that, folks, is that you can know a lot of good theology and doctrine as propositional statements of fact and truth, but really not trust in the person of Jesus. Paul had a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ, the risen one, the living one. He knows whom he has believed. And what does he know about him? He's convinced about something about Jesus. He's convinced that Jesus is able to guard what he entrusted to him until that day. In other words, he knows that Jesus is faithful. Paul was seeking to be faithful to the Lord, but the Lord was always faithful to Paul. He could trust him. He could walk in dependence upon him because he's able to guard what he entrusted to him until that day. Now, at this point, I need to let you know that there 
are two possible translations of this verse. And I think Oleg's got them. There we go. I'm going to give you two samples of this. I, I went through probably 12 or 15 different translations to see how they came out with this verse. And they're almost split 50-50. So the NASB goes like this. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The ESV goes like this. He's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do you see the difference between the two? Here's the literal Greek. And this is why you have the possibility of two different translations. Both are possibilities. Here's the literal Greek. He's able to guard my deposit until that day. Now what do you mean, Paul? He is able to guard my deposit. Are you talking about he's able to guard the deposit I've entrusted to him until that day? Well, that's a possibility. Or are you saying he's able to guard the deposit I've entrusted to him? I mean the deposit he's entrusted to me. Until that day. It could go either way. Either meaning could be possible. And so in these kinds of cases, the only way to solve it is to look at the context. And when you look at the context, you don't come out with a a slam dunk winner. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you both views this morning and how each one would have been understood and just let you make up your mind or maybe you just accept. Spurgeon used to always do this. If there's two possibilities, he'd preach both of them. (laughs) Take your pick. This is one of those really difficult verses to, to really nail down as to what it actually meant. So let's do it. View number one. He's able to guard whatever, what I have entrusted to him until that day. What Paul would mean in this view is that the Lord is able to guard my soul. He's able to guard my life until that day. I'm getting ready to die but I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I preach because I know whatever happens to me, even if they lop off my head, which they ended up doing in 67 AD, they lopped off his head. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I have no regrets. I have utter confidence in the Lord because He is able to guard my soul and my life. And there's a lot to commend that particular understanding of this verse. Let me just tell you the the one for me that makes it fairly convincing. As you read through the text... He says that he is able to guard. Now, what would you expect if you're talking about the Lord being able to guard something? It seems most natural that you are entrusting to him something to guard. If he's the one guarding, then I'm probably going to be entrusting something to him to guard. That would be a a point in favor of this particular view. But if that is the particular view that Paul mentioned... What he would be saying is something like what Jesus uttered from the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was about to die. And Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. So, And also, in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So it would mean something like that. I am confident that the Lord is going to deliver me and He's going to keep me and bring me into His kingdom. I've entrusted to Him my soul and my life and I know that He will watch over that soul and He will keep it. Okay, so what does he mean if it's view number two? That He's able to keep what He has entrusted to me. Now let me tell you why this might also be a convincing interpretation. Everywhere else you look, 
in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy especially, when we're told about guarding something and entrusting something, it's always the, the Christian who is doing the guarding and entrusting, and God doing the entrusting of that thing to him. I'll just give you one quick example, verse 14. Paul tells Timothy, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now that verse is very clear. It's This gospel has been entrusted to Timothy. It's not something that Timothy has entrusted to God. So that may, may cause some people to lean in that direction. Well, if that's what Paul meant, what does he mean? He simply means... The Lord has entrusted His gospel to Timothy. The Lord entrusted that gospel to Paul. And Paul is convinced that God is able to continue to guard that gospel even though he's about to die. He's wondering what's going to take place when I'm dead and gone. The Lord is able to guard that gospel that I've entrusted to Him and that He has entrusted to me until that day. I don't have any regrets. I'm not ashamed. God is able. You see, the Lord has entrusted to us His gospel, but in a very real sense, He hasn't taken His hands off of it. Because if He just entrusted it to fallible, weak men, we'd probably goof the whole thing up, and we'd it'd probably be lost a long time ago. So the Lord still watches over that wonderful gospel that He's given to His church, and He still makes sure that it will not be discarded or corrupted, but it will eventually and ultimately triumph. So, let me just ask you, whichever view we take, it doesn't really make too big of a difference because when we bring it all down to this, Paul is simply saying, I am confident in the Lord. I know that He's trustworthy. I know that He's faithful. I have no regrets and no shame. And I am willing to endure suffering for the gospel's sake. So let me ask you, are you willing to endure suffering for the gospel's sake? Here in America, we don't have that much overt persecution. In many places of the world, they do. In some places of the world, you have to put your life on the line when you give your life to Christ and get baptized. You're a marked man in some cultures. But still, the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will face opposition if we live for Jesus Christ. Are you willing to have that. Do you remember Jesus told a parable of four different kinds of soil? And he said the word is like seed. And the sower sowed the seed on this one kind of soil and it sprung up really quickly. But when the sun came out, it withered and died. And the disciples said, Lord, what, what do you mean? What's that talking about? And he said, some people receive the word with joy. But when the tribulations come, they're like the sun. They wither and they die and they fall away. And folks, we are going to face tests in our life of whether we really mean business with God or not. We're going to face pain for being faithful to this gospel. It may mean the loss of a relationship that is very precious to us. Sometimes that happens. Who do you love more? Is it the Lord Jesus or is it this other individual? Sometimes it's going to be Painful because you're going to have to let go of some sin in your life that you become comfortable with and you take great delight in and great pleasure in. 
But if you're going to obey Jesus, you're going to have to be willing to turn from that sin and seek Him and ask for the power of the Spirit to enable you to be free of that and to walk in holiness and righteousness. Those things can be difficult. And I'm just warning you, especially those who are young in the faith, be ready because that sun is coming up. And it will test your faith to see if it's real. And a genuine faith will endure through these difficult, difficult times. And just know that we're pulling for you. We love you. We're praying for you. So we need to be willing to spread the gospel, willing to suffer for the gospel. And we also need to be willing to safeguard the gospel. To safeguard the gospel. Look at verse 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, we have an example of what we call parallelism. Two verses are parallel to each other. They're similar in meaning, but use different words to explain the basic same concept. So verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now let me ask you, Verse 13, he speaks about the standard of sound words. What phrase do we have in verse 14 that's parallel to that? Anybody see it? Well, that's part of it. Let's go back a little bit. The standard of sound words is parallel to? The treasure. The treasure. Verse 13 talks about retaining Retaining the standard. What does verse 14 talk about? Guarding. Guarding. Retain the standard of sound words. Guard the gospel. That thing which has been entrusted to you. Now let's take a look at this in a little bit more detail. He says retain. What is that word retain all about? What does that mean? Keep it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Okay. What is the standard of sound words? What did he mean by that? Yes, it's, it's that body of apostolic doctrine that is passed down from Paul to Timothy. And we're going to see in chapter 2, verse 2, that it was Timothy's job to keep passing that body of apostolic down to faithful men who are going to teach other people that same body of apostolic doctrine. So... What is that body of apostolic doctrine? It's our New Testament. It's our, the scriptures of the New Testament. They have been inscripturated in a book. They've been written down for all succeeding generations so that we would never doubt what the truth of God is all about. So we are to retain the standard of sound words. That is healthy teaching. Teaching that makes you whole and healthy and builds you up. Keep it. Hold on to it. Don't let anybody take it from you. You see the connection? So we are to tenaciously cling to Scripture as a church. That's one of the things I hope that the bridge is always known for. We are a church that loves the Bible. Can't get enough of it. We meditate on it day and night. It is our strength for our soul. And I hope each one of you are cultivating a love and a delight in the Scripture. I love to hear people say I'm memorizing this or I'm memorizing that. It's beautiful. Love it. It means you're meditating on the Word when you're memorizing Scripture.
Praise God that He's doing that in our church. Hallelujah. May God just develop a culture of disciple-making within the bridge here. So we love God's Word. We retain it. We hold on to it. We don't want it to be robbed or stolen away from us. And He says, Do it in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Hold on to that inscripturated Word in faith, but also do it in love. Do it in love. And then he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted. That word guard is a military term and it, could ha- it meant in different circumstances to guard a palace from being broken into or to guard possessions from being stolen or to guard a prisoner from being set free or rescued. So it's talking about us being, imagine yourself as sort of a guard. And here is this precious treasure, this gospel. And God's job for you is to guard it so that it doesn't become corrupted and it doesn't become neglected or discarded. You are to guard it so that it remains pure. So that the next generation of Christians receive a pure gospel. Now folks, there's all kinds of gospels out there today. What we want to be concerned about is passing on a biblical gospel. We have a gospel that says, be baptized in Jesus' name only and speak in tongues, and that's the good news. We have a gospel that says, God wants every single person to be healthy, without sickness, and He wants them to be rich and wealthy. That's our gospel. The biblical gospel has to do with salvation from sin. It has to do with God averting His own wrath from people who trust in Jesus Christ. It's the salvation of the soul that is the, the object of the gospel of the Bible. Do you see that? And we are to pass that gospel on. We're to make sure it doesn't become corrupted. And I guess primarily this is uh, the responsibility of those who God has entrusted with a particular local church. This would be the responsibility of elders, teachers within the body of Christ. They need to make sure that gospel is passed on pure. They need to study. They need to be in the Word of God. They need to be comparing Scripture with Scripture. They need to know a little bit about church history and what people have believed throughout history. They need to be people that that are in the book. They're people of the book. And then they need to pass that gospel on pure. So we need to be willing to spread the gospel, suffer for the gospel, and safeguard the gospel. We need to safeguard it. Now notice he tells us that we're supposed to do this through the Holy Spirit. Guard through the Holy Spirit the treasure that's been entrusted to you. Well, how do we do that? You're going to need courage to safeguard this gospel. Where do we get the courage? That's right. Chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity or cowardice. He's given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. So he's simply saying to Timothy, you need to rely heavily upon the work of the Spirit. Trust that the Spirit of God will enable you to safeguard this gospel against all opposition, to speak the truth in love, but to speak the truth of the gospel. So do it through the Holy Spirit. Now why did Timothy have to safeguard this gospel? Well, the reason comes in verses 15 to 18. It's because... All of Asia had already turned away from Paul and his ministry. 
there was all, already this defection taking place. Look at verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. People were afraid for their lives. This was a time of fear, intimidation. They didn't want to be, end up in prison or with their heads lopped off like Paul's was about to. And so they were drawing back. They were turning away. There is this defection going on. And Paul says, that's why you need to safeguard the gospel. is because people are turning away from it. You need to make sure that you don't turn away from it and that you encourage others not to turn away from it. You safeguard that pure gospel. Well, was everybody turning away from the gospel? No. There's a bright spot here. There is a man named Anesiphorus who is a wonderful example of someone who did not turn away, who did not defect. He says in verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. It's almost a moving tribute to this man, Anesiphorus. He says, while everybody else was defecting and turning away from me, there was this one guy. He came to Rome and he eagerly searched for me. He wasn't ashamed to be seen with me. And he found me. And when he came, he refreshed me. That probably means he brought him supplies like fresh fruit or vegetables or maybe dried meat or cheese or whatever. He brought him some food and maybe a blanket to keep him warm at night. He refreshed him and then he refreshed him with Christian fellowship. And Paul, why do you think Paul's bringing up this good example of an Esophorus right here? Anyone know? It's to encourage Timothy to be like him. Timothy was going to face suffering and hardship for identifying with Paul. And Paul says, look at the example of Anesiphorus. All these other people have turned away, but not him. He stood with me. And it's interesting when you look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus. He he doesn't mention Anesiphorus himself. He mentions his household. Which has caused some people to say... Maybe Anesiphorus is dead by the time Paul writes this. Because he doesn't, he doesn't uh, ask for mercy to, for Anesiphorus living. In verse uh, 18, there's a prayer wish that he would find mercy from the Lord on that day, the day of judgment. But he, he refers to his household. And when we look at the greetings... When Paul writes in chapter 4 and he sends greetings from the people that he, are with him there in prison, he doesn't mention Anesiphorus. So we've got two options. Either Anesiphorus is dead or Anesiphorus is on his trip back to Ephesus to greet his household. One of the two. But it could be, we're speculating here, but it could be that he had associated with Paul and he had lost his life because of his Christian profession. Or he might have been in prison somewhere in Rome. We really don't know. Those are guesses. And so I'll just take that with a grain of salt. But what we do know is that this is a faithful man who wasn't ashamed to stand with Paul in his hour of greatest need while everybody else was deserting him. So here we have one bright spot. This man. So how do we apply this today? We apply it by being zealous and diligent to know the Word of God. 
And you say, well, I'm just a, a new Christian. I'm just an ordinary Christian. That's okay. God wants you to grow in the knowledge of the Word. Over in 2 Timothy 2, he writes to Timothy and he says, be diligent. That means study hard. Be earnest. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed. Well, how? What do I do so I'm not ashamed? Handling accurately the word of truth. So I want you to have as your goal to learn how to handle accurately God's word. So in order to do that, you learn things like reading in context, read what comes before it, read what comes after it. You learn how to do word studies to find out what that word meant when Paul wrote it. You learn to try to seek the authorial intent What did that writer mean when he wrote to that audience? That's the meaning. Now we can draw application from that, but that's the meaning. There's all kinds of these things that will help you with this. But make it a goal of your life that you want to be able to open up the Bible and understand it correctly and handle it accurately so that you can pass it on to someone else pure rather than corrupted or tainted. Amen? Anybody in on that? You're willing to make that a goal? Praise the Lord. So... Here's what Paul has to tell Timothy. Spread the gospel, suffer for the gospel, and safeguard the gospel. And he's saying the same thing to us. May God help us to obey those commands. Amen. We do ask, O Lord, that you would take these truths and seal them to our hearts so that they become part and parcel of our lives, that we are people of the book, people of the word, that we're willing to embrace opposition and persecution, because we love our Lord more than anything else, even our sin or any other person. We pray, Lord, that you would cause all of us here to be those who would be spreaders of the good news, to find a way, to find a way to get this good news to other people. Lord, make these truths live in the hearts of your people today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.